welcome to the Simpleton Podcast, the most popular podcast amongst God's faithful remnant. This is where you turn for joyful, faith-filled, and hopeful analysis of almost anything. How you doing, Laura Heeman? Doing good, Clark Massey. All right, let me give you a signpost for today. We're going to talk about reforming institutions, Catholic and otherwise, how to make big institutions turn around. We're going to talk about listener feedback that defends Gen Z. Then we're going to talk about uh, complexity experts and an idea about um, imminent domain laws that might improve the current situation. Uh, We then are going to introduce a topic that we want to go into later, which has to do with via negativa, via positiva, this idea of the way of negation or a kind of a more positive way of approaching God, but how it might affect your own spiritual goals in life. And finally, you're going to hear a review of Ted Lasso with spoilers and discussion of theodrama. And then Laura will bring back our recommendation section with a quality recommendation. Great. Shall we launch right in or you got anything you want to share? All right. On Mother's Day, Lydia woke me up with some homemade chocolates that she had made for me, and they were delicious. But as a prelude to the rest of the story, on Saturday, she had come in the house and said, don't look in the freezer. Uh, And there was some explanation about her friend across the street and something about giving something back. And it didn't totally make sense, but whatever. So on Sunday, I eat my two chocolates and then I hear the kids outside and they are eating like the neighbors, like lemon cake that the grandmother brought over for Mother's Day. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what are they doing? So I go outside to like bring them back inside and keep them from intruding on this other Mother's Day celebration. (laughs) And our neighbor across the street, the dad comes, he's like, hey, can we get our tray of chocolates back? <laughs> oh no, they stole chocolates from the neighbor to give so to you I, for Mother's I Day? I was like, oh, I was mortified. I was like, oh my gosh. And he's just like, it's just that our teenager made that for my wife. And I was like, wow. Well, oh my I, gosh. That's so I, great. It was horrible. Uh, I was like, well, yes, you can have it back, but I already ate two of them. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, the wife later clarified that my daughter and her daughter, who are young, were making the chocolates for us together. And she sent the teenager in to kind of help them slash actually just do it because, you know, they were making a mess. And so they were supposed to be for the both of us. But there was a while where I thought my kids had had like the neighbor's Mother's Day lemon cake and I had eaten the other neighbor's uh chocolates <laughs> oh these were different neighbors that's pretty yeah, different epic. neighbors different yeah. neighbors yeah well your Ryan, kids are up to stuff i yeah. i don't think my kids no, they are. are networked enough to pull anything like that off <laughs> yeah yeah all right um shall we start with reforming institutions sure okay in the early days of simple house this idea came about like how do you reform things And I see this idea resurface all the time. And I think there's a couple basic observations that need said. So like in the early days of Simple House, um, I was meeting a lot of, and you were too, or a lot of Mm -hmm. um, young people who had good faith, um, Mm -hmm. believed in the whole catechism, and they wanted to join like religious orders, right? But in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was kind of a crisis of religious orders. Um, Most of them either weren't, kind of faithful to the catechism and things like this. And there were some really bad seminaries that they, even some of the better orders were sending guys to. Right. And you kept meeting people who were saying, this sounds so crazy, but I'll tell you, they spent it in all sincerity. They would say, I feel called to join this order. I know the formation's bad and I know the order's off track, Mm. but I will survive the formation and somehow like help reform this order. Right. And they're in the prime of their lives. They're like, you know, 21 years old, ready to go, full of energy, full of hope and zeal, you know, and they would enter under that, you know, idea. And even I even tried to dissuade multiple of them and I could not even talk them out of it. Right. Yeah. They were too sure that that was like their calling. Right. Mm -hmm. And every single one that I know of lasted 
a couple years, sometimes as many as six, and ended up leaving the religious order. And as they left, it was hard for them to even attend Sunday Mass. Like they were so shattered and messed up by the time they left. They went from being zealous to going through a meat grinder for so many years to the point that they like were so upset about faith and religion. They were barely Catholic. Mm -hmm. Right. And there was this like incredible naivety that was being fed in the, in them. It's almost like, Hey, you're the youth. You can change the world. And then you yeah. get, you know, shoved over to a bunch of guys that are my age that are wrongheaded and like know how to change people, you know, <laughs> yeah, and have all the control and just grind them up, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a way in which this ground level, I guess. So I guess the takeaway I'm having is um, like sending young people in at the ground level is not the way you're going to change an institution. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's like a young person might have the right ideas. Um, And I mean, other than being in charge, the older people also do have like the perspective (laughs) of being older, you know, and it's it's hard to um, like combat that because it's like you kind of don't know what you don't know or you realize, (laughs) you know, I don't know. Um, Well, particularly on this case, religious orders, it's like, what do you call your first so many years in an order? You call it formation. Formation, and right. the yeah. attitude of these young people was, "I will somehow survive formation, but not let it form me." Yes, right? yeah. Which one is not the right attitude to have in going into religious life, and two, yeah. it's just impossible because these formators know what they're doing. Yeah, and they're smarter, yeah. and they they've been they they know your arguments. They're not yeah. dumb, you know. Now they might be an heir and they might have a lot of evil things going on, but they're not dumb, you know? Right. Right. And so that was just this like naivety that was just kind of dumb on the people going in, but it created this tragedy. Yeah. But it's, it's also interesting because that naivety is saying like there's formations, not actually valuable because everybody right. that goes through formation actually needs something to, to get something out of formation. And it, right. it sucks when the formation is bad, but there is like something you have to grow out of yourself, you know, that's like an essential part of preparing for the religious life or the priesthood or whatever. Um, and there is a sense in which this is one component of the vocation crisis, because the number of times I saw it was over 10. And that's just one weird dude who's, you know, you know, religiously active in, in DC, you know, I mean, it had to have chewed up at least a couple thousand vocations. Yeah. Yeah. You know, nationwide. Yeah. Particularly, you know, cause it, sometimes it was happening in diocesan. Uh, yeah. I, I, I saw it also play out like, um, the diocese send their guys to different seminaries, right. Who right. might not be controlled by the diocese. Right. So, right. um, I do want to say that we're at the end of this, I'm going to, we're going to talk about like, can an institution be reformed? If so, mm-hmm. how, but I think the one institution you are allowed to martyr yourself for is the church itself. Yeah. You know, your parish, your diocese, the church itself is mm-hmm. the institution that, you know, no matter how bad the formation gets, yeah. I mean, you got to go for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But whether or not any religious order, even if they're as big as the Jesuits or Franciscans continues to exist, another generation doesn't matter that much. Yeah. You know, I remember being told, and this is true, that more religious orders have closed their doors than exist today. And that's right. There's not, that's not a, that's not a problem. That's just like the way things should be actually, you know, and that these religious orders fundamentally are schools of holiness. Yeah. And if they quit making people holy, they should shut. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's no shame in that. It's just like, you're just not working anymore. Um, Yeah. The other thing I saw at this time that also kind of went this like kind of like the youth will change the world attitude was there was an effort to start training um, young Catholic idealistic, uh, you know, college grads who might be like theology majors or whatever in social work, you know, and I love that idea, you know, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't that academic of an approach. It was more just like, hey, do some love with your social work and have some faith with your social work. It wasn't like trying to reinvent the academic nature of social work, which I think is needed. Yeah. But like their idea was to create a program and like essentially an internship program that um, would do this. And then what send them all out into big social work institutions being run by 50 year olds who are once again, meat grinders. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they know how to make you a hardened social worker. Yeah. Yep. Right. <laughs> and, and the idea that the, some young people will come in idealistically from the, in the most entry level position and reform that is just not real. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Now, if you're not depressed, actually, my point's <laughs> never to be depressed. This is going to be a less depressing episode than our last one. Right. I think. Um, so. But then there's also this issue of like Catholic universities, because there was a lot of talk about at that time, you know, has Georgetown's kind of lost its way or Boston College or whatever the Catholic university is. Mm -hmm. Are they actually being Catholic? You know, because I think being Catholic got confused with a lot of things like multiculturalism, DEI, you know, all these other things that were not always inherently bad, but were certainly were programs in the wrong direction yeah. sometimes. But like, I remember walking through Georgetown because we received support in the early days of Simple House from a small community in Georgetown called Copley Crypt. It was mm -hmm. a little community that met in the Copley Crypt at Georgetown. And I would always walk by the um, cemetery of Jesuits that's on campus. And Georgetown's very old. Like, um, is it in the 1700s? I, I think so. But some of these gravestones are very old. Yeah. And you just think what you guys worked so hard for when like yeah. the whole future of the university was very uncertain is your sacrifice. Would you have made the sacrifice for this? And what, what yeah. this is, is a very successful university that's not promoting the faith. Right. You know, and, not and promoting it's not just not worldview. promoting the faith. It, it might be in some instances, you know, destroying. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It could be a meat grinder of faith, just like certain religious orders were. Yeah. And I knew Georgetown alumni who wanted to reform it, but it was like, is it even plausible? And when you looked at like the landscape of kind of faithful Catholic schools um, that were universities, I'm going to leave uh, Notre Dame and CUA out for a second because they're kind of in a different situation. But you saw like startups. You saw like a TAC, a Christendom and Ave Maria. Now, whether mm -hmm. or not you think they're too conservative, whatever, but they were faithful, yeah. you know, and at yeah. that time that was rare. And you also saw schools like Steubenville, which were reborn and really thriving, and then mm -hmm. later kind of Benedictine, right? Yep. And now there's even more. And what they all had in common was, what's so funny is, take very seriously the situation of like a Christendom. The people who founded that knew there were more Catholic universities than you could shake a stick at. I mean, there were just so many mm -hmm. Catholic universities, yet they didn't feel like any of them were doing a good job. Mm -hmm. To the point... They were going to spend their lives sacrificing and building a brand new institution. Yep. Right. And then like a Steubenville is basically like a third tier school on the verge of bankruptcy who has someone come in with vision and say, you know, we're never going to outcompete the Harvards of the world in academics, but you know what? We can be more Catholic than all these people. Yeah. And that becomes the selling point that saves them. That actually does improve their academics. Yeah. You know, because like, if you if you're a faithful Catholic who's at the top of your field, um, there's a small chance that you would want to come to Steubenville. Yeah. You know, it might not yeah. be large. It certainly is not going to help you in your academic career, but those jobs are now desirable. Right. Right. I mean, you you would be next to like Scott Hahn. Sure. You know, it yeah. would be a very enjoyable life, you know, yeah. uh, possibly there. And it offers things that like an Ivy League school doesn't. Yeah. Now, when Steubenville was just a failing kind of mediocre school, it offered nothing. Yeah. It didn't offer a thriving Catholic environment or yeah, a good intellectual Yeah, I mean, it didn't life. even offer a thriving city. Um. <laughs> right. Still doesn't. Yeah. But, you know, well, and, um, yeah. but the point here is that a lot of these turnaround stories happen at the gates of failure. Mm -hmm. That would be the case with St. Jerome's. Right. Your, yeah. your own. Um, yeah elementary school was failing and then they got a new program and now they're thriving. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but when you look at a Georgetown, they're not failing. Mm -hmm. They might be failing at right. passing on the faith, but they're not failing any other way. And they've also are very desirable to people outside the church. Yeah. Like once you become coveted by these outsiders, you're in trouble because like now you're hiring just people who are in the top of their fields who um, aren't Catholic and now if you want to become more Catholic, all those people oppose you. Right. Right. 
I don't know if this is totally on point, but like when I was in grad school, uh, I knew this, I was friends with this Indian guy and this Indian guy really fresh off the boat, kind of like he like had applied for colleges in America mm-hmm. from India, never been to the U S before, didn't get to tour any of the colleges, got accepted and came right. And I was talking about Catholic universities with him and he started being like, what do you mean Boston college is Catholic? And I go, well, it's Catholic, you know, at least historically. And, and I go, and so is Georgetown. So it's, and he was horrified. Wow. And I go, I go, what? And he's like, well, what if I would have gone to those colleges not knowing they were Catholic? Because he's just coming yeah. from India. How would he know Boston College is Catholic from India? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and it's just kind of a funny, but like, frankly, he probably could have gone there and not been bothered by the Catholicism because the Catholic identity is not strong. Yeah. You know, yeah. or the faith's not strong. Maybe Catholic identity itself is kind of a sellout term. But. Like I see it now with like um, elementary schools, like St. Jerome's, right? Like my elementary school that belongs to my parish, which my kids don't go to, but like they're debating whether or not they should expand DEI, you know what I mean? And like have meetings on it and things like this. Right. And they did a survey and they asked for people to be on their strategic planning committee. And I volunteered to be on the committee and I wrote back on their survey. I go, you're a Catholic school. Your two focuses should be Catholic and school. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, and that yeah, this yeah. will not serve you, you know, yeah. Um, and that culture doesn't come from you. It's coming from these families. Yeah. You know, so it welcome yeah. these families, but don't try to like. Right. Accommodate right. Yeah, or, or enforce or either symbolically be multicultural, which isn't really about understanding these other cultures. Yeah. If you want to be really multicultural, you know, teach more foreign language, not yeah. just like have celebratory days. But right. All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Where are we going with this? Um, when you see these problems, I see Catholics want to fix them. Like you Mm -hmm. realize there's a problem and you want to fix it. Now, I think me wanting to be on the strategic planning committee, which I don't really want to, but I'd be happy if they asked me, I'm just not going to put that much energy into it because I don't see a great energy for reform there or a possibility of reform, partly because they're doing fine. Yeah. Everything they've been doing has been working on their own standards and they don't see a great need for reform. And um, I think you either have to start over or have to find the failing institution to create the reform. That makes sense. I think that makes sense. There's something kind of humble about it because that's kind of where Simple House came from was like this idea we weren't seeing places that did the corporal and spiritual works of mercy together. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, well, we can just kind of do it. We can just kind of start one and it might fail or might even probably fail. And the the smart money is going to bet it fails. But now we're at 20 years. But... It's just, um, I think you have to start over. Yeah. That no longer depresses me. I don't grieve for that. You know, I think yeah. like, like there will come a point where there's more Catholic universities that have failed than exist. Yeah. And that'll be okay too, as long as new good places are being created. Yeah. I, I think there's something also that it's like, maybe, um, the failure isn't always a failure or something. Maybe there was a place that was meeting a need at a time, you know, and then it's not, you know, I, I don't know. Like right. I, that's I think, right too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I've yeah come to terms with this idea that like, it's always a mistake to think of your success in terms of growth. Yeah. Or lasting forever or, you know, right. Like, right. I, right. Like yeah. doing good now is what you're being called to not necessarily growth or lasting forever. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think we threw out the names Notre Dame and CUA. I think there's a sense in which neither of those universities ever went fully wrong. So they don't need to do a 180, but there's always been this like vibrant fight for kind of the soul of those institutions. Yeah, I think they're comparable, but also different. Like, I, I feel like I see Notre Dame kind of go one inch one way one year and another inch the next or whatever. And I, I'd be kind of curious to hear from a Notre Dame grad if they had a different opinion. But CUA did kind of rewrite itself, though. And it was like in mild crisis. Like it was kind of like a blah school. <laughs> um, the theology was a little bit off. The Catholic identity was a little, I don't know. Like it wasn't. Yeah. I, I, I do think there was like in the late nineties, an effort to rewrite CUA. And also at that time, it wasn't like, I'm not sure that there was like um, a feeling that there was a lot to sell CUA, even though it did have some individually really good programs, you know? Um, so I don't know. Why do you think it, how do you think it reformed? I, I think two things happened. Um, we got a president who was more 
orthodox in his beliefs at the same time of getting this like great campus minister. I just think that the that this president like highlighted the, the Catholic identity of CUA more and started moving it in that direction. Um, and like the religion department started hiring accordingly. And then after he was gone, we got like a very Catholic president who had like a really good vision for the, the Catholic identity of the school. Um, All right. So, so far we've talked about like reforming religious institutions, like a school mm-hmm. or a religious order or whatever, or a charitable organization. But this is interesting right now because we need to reform some of our bigger political institutions, right? And one of the reformers um, prominently right now in the U.S. is DeSantis, right? He's trying to reform public schools, and he's also doing some other political things that you might consider kind of stunts, like busing immigrants. But the way he's trying to reform schools is he's trying to control them by saying, you can't teach CRT. He's also saying you can't do any type of gender agenda in the first so many years of elementary school, um, which is what, you know, got labeled the don't say gay stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the other thing is he's trying to reform university by changing some of the board of directors. Yeah. Right. So I think like the left wants to characterize DeSantis as like, you know, doing clown moves that are just political stunts. Right. And, and and it's like, even though I agree with him in a lot of like where he's coming from, I I'm not sure that the left is wrong with this characterization. Well, my thought is like there are certain political stunts that might be for the good, like um, like you just do a stunt that points out someone's hypocrisy and mm-hmm. or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there is no real solution for immigration for uh, busing them to northern states. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like that's now that might be a stunt that has some PR value, but it's not really a solution. Right. Right. Now on reforming the schools, are these stunts or are these real reforms? Mm -hmm. Because I would argue kind of based on this other, you know, reflections we had in the early days of Simple House about how religious orders and these other institutions don't seem to want to reform by merely telling public schools, hey, you're not allowed to teach critical uh, theory or mm-hmm. you can't talk about gender and sex with young people or your board of directors is going to shift so that they have a different philosophy than the whole rest of your institution. Yeah. You know, I think all of this is doomed, you yeah. know, and it's although it signals to, you know, conservatives that you hear them and you hear their concerns and you're trying to like fix these concerns. The problem is that you can't do it. Like, yeah. If the teachers themselves and the union and the principals and all that are not on board and the school districts not on board with not teaching CRT, they will figure out a way to do it. Yeah. yeah. Right. And if they're not on board with like taking the kind of creating, getting rid of some of this gender confusion that's being promulgated, they won't do it. Yeah. And they know how to not do it. Right. You know? Right. And, and what you've done is now you've created a long term like tit for tat little like, um, argument with them mm-hmm. that like in your moments of political strength will look like you're winning or, Hey, everybody will be sympathetic with you when you're calling out this certain teacher or certain school district. But in other moments will look like you're losing. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And in reality, it's not a reform. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying it's tweaking a, a system that is problematic. You know, like there's like a bigger problem and a tweak doesn't change the thing. Right. Or it's just and like new new boundaries or whatever. Yeah. It's a tweak. It's also a tweak from the outside, not from the inside. Yeah. It's not coming from the real leadership of these schools. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it's not coming from the teachers union and from the school mm-hmm. district and all that. Right. So it's a tweak that just is not going to work. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's also going to create this ongoing political drama that could come back and bite you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, it'll it'll just like 10 years from now, Pendulum you could swing. still be calling people out for teaching CRT and they could still be yelling back at you and you're just never fixing it. And all you're creating is like headlines. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if this board of directors of this university starts firing whole departments or trying to do different things like that, trying to really reform it, it's just going to be headlines. And the headlines are actually going to motivate your enemies more than they motivate your base. Yeah. Right. So it's neither going to work. It's not going to politically work either. Yeah. Right. Uh, The thing that does work would be to just like quit supporting it altogether. 
So like, what if you just move to a model where you say, we believe in the public supporting education. We do not believe in public education, right? Like take all these schools and say, Hey, uh, all the school land is a nonprofit. You can rent these schools for a buck. If you're already there, um, your school is now a nonprofit, a standalone nonprofit. And, um, we'll pay you for each student that agrees to come to your school, you know, and maybe you have to meet some basic of like the Iowa basics, you know, skills test or whatever Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. student competency. I I have a hard time um, picturing this kind of reform because I don't think there's enough energy behind it. So broken (laughs) yet. Like, I don't think people feel like it's that broken. It's not obviously failing like Steubenville was failing or, some of these Catholic schools that were about to close doors, you know? Yeah. I think, um, what he could do though. And as a governor, you can't even do it. Cause usually these things are, um, city County level. Mm-hmm. Right. But what, as a governor, you could do is you could just say, when we fund education at the state level, to whatever extent we fund it, that money goes equally to follow students. It does not go to school districts. Mm. Right. And that would just start that dynamic or, you yeah. look at your state schools and state schools are no longer doing what they were meant to do. Yeah. Like state schools originally were kind of like four year community colleges. Like they were about mm-hmm. giving you a maximum value education and not about Starbucks coffee in the student lounge, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and like cinder block walls, but good professors was yeah. like what a state school was supposed to be. Right. And, and it was supposed to be cheap. Like mm-hmm. one of the main points was it is going to be cheap, right? Yeah. And to the extent that state schools have lost that way, you should just say, well, you know, you're kind of behaving like a private school. You can be a private school. Yeah. You know, we don't need to be funding you. Consider yeah. all the buildings we built for you, all the land you were granted as your, you know, endowed funding from the state. You can still be a state school, called a state school, but we're um, no longer going to be like giving you a slice of the state budget. Yeah. Right. Like if he does stuff like that, that creates real reform. You know what I mean? Like that's a powerful move telling people they can't say something in their classroom is somehow not very powerful. It's not powerful in the sense of creating reform. It's also not powerful. All you're doing is just creating drama. Yeah. Yeah. So in a way you're saying like the reform would be by you would put it kind of on the individual or individual family to choose like what kind of education suits them. So there's kind of like a, like an economic, like uh aspect to it. Right. Um, yeah, I guess another hesitation I have is that I don't think like as a culture, like we're used to thinking about like what is valuable education, what's a good education, um, how bad is that, that we don't even think that, you know? Do you think that's true though? I mean, I, yeah, I think it's like, if you're, if you're sending your kids to private school at some level, you're thinking about that. I think you see, I feel like on YouTube, you see these like public school board meetings where parents go and speak with a lot of passion about the math program or history or whatever. So obviously people are thinking about it, but, but that's like trying to control ideas one way or the other. And maybe like what the goal of education is, is would be like an important way to think about what school you want to send your kid. And I don't know how well we think about that, but I think that there's a big, like, like this is true in Casey and in DC. So, you know, the term, like when, like a, um, when a country just kind of like falls apart and you'll call it a failed state, Mm -hmm. right? The state's just no longer functioning. Right. Right. Um, If you look at the D.C. public school district and the K.C. public school district, there's a sense in which they spend more per person than like anyone else. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. With worse results than anyone else. Right. Yeah. But it's not publicly acceptable to say out loud that you're dealing with kind of like a failed state or a failed, a completely failed enterprise. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's this forever myth that if we try harder, work harder, fund more. Get yeah, funding, smarter fun more. Uh-huh. and change the school district uh, superintendent that somehow it could be fixed. Yeah. But we're on like decade five of this. We're on yeah. like half a century of this. 
right? Sometime in the 70s is when things started going bad. And it's like, at what point do you, it's so insulting to every previous generation that they couldn't fix it. You're like saying, you guys had such bad motives and were so cheap and hated the inner city kids. You could not fix the school district. Yeah, but now here we are. I think people have deeply been wanting to fix these school districts since the 80s. And the school districts have always won or always have defeated the reformers, right? And so now it's like, I mean, like everyone probably knows an outlier somewhere. And that's not my point. But like in a lot of these places, the only true reform that's happened is charter schools which is a public school, not under the school district. Yeah. It had the only progress they made was just to take the money away and basically create school choice. Yeah. You know? And I think if you believe in real diversity, you'd want to have a Jewish school, a Chinese school, a mm-hmm. Catholic school and all this. Right. And you'd have a real diversity in our society and you'd want to make sure that there's some minimum reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, and maybe even civics, you know, like, you know, as we've said in previous podcasts, somehow this like secular attitude that we think of as like the um, non-biased, you know, generic thing is actually its own religion. Yeah. You know, and is antagonistic to things that stand up against it. Yeah. Yeah. I would not characterize like the majority of Maryland County schools as like your county, like as failed states, you know, <laughs> Um but I, you told me, and I didn't know this, that a lot of, well, like, did you say Missouri passed like school vouchers? Yes, state all the school vouchers. And you said other states have done this. Yes. Yeah. Like, there's more than a half dozen states that have school, statewide school vouchers, and mm-hmm. it's limited. It's like a baby step. It's like they cap the amount of money, like twenty five million or something like that, you mm-hmm. know. And there's mm-hmm. some other rules like they don't want to like undermine rural schools like they yeah. only want to do this for the population centers. Right. Yeah. But like, I mean, D.C. had school vouchers forever that yeah, was paid for, for by the feds. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. because the, the D.C. government wasn't going to do it. And so the feds yeah. did it, you know. Yeah. And yeah. I have a feeling that like even if any, you know, suburban county doesn't have a, you know, a fail, a completely failed system. Um, I have a feeling that Baltimore probably does. You know, I'm yeah. not even checking the data, yeah. but I bet it does. Yeah, don't. Yeah. And um, don't check <laughs> <Yeah>. the data. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the question is, can it be better? Right. And yeah. I would really love the idea of kids going to their neighborhood school. I really love the idea of a publicly, you know, as public center that's well supported within a community and all that, you know, and pride that sometimes surrounds certain public high schools and stuff like this. Yeah. All that's good. Right. And I think a lot of that would remain if you just told all these you know, institutions that they're kind of on their own and, you know, they actually have to do a better job than their competition. You know, they're not just going to be funded no matter what. Yeah. So interesting idea. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess the question here is, can you tinker or have we had 50 years of tinkering and it never works? Right. You know, and I think what DeSantis is doing is along the lines of tinkering, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and it's kind of, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens long term there, but mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Next topic. We got some feedback from a listener. Laura, right. would you like to, and this, this listener, uh, is defending Gen Z who in the last episode we said often trust too much and doesn't care about their right to privacy. I, I think this listener was trying to give us some insight like we were kind of trying to figure out the viewpoint of gen z a little bit right and we were making observations and this person said so we both know this person and you know you're giving this person too much credit right oh my gosh okay (laughs) (laughs) all right read read the message that we received okay okay this person said their take is the following Um, I trust parentheses to an extent, um, the government, um, because if I didn't trust the government, who am I supposed to trust? These are elected officials or experts in their field that we as a society have deemed worthy to hold that position. Like Joe Schmo isn't getting hired at the CDC. People with little PhDs are that PhD is an indicator of their alleged expertise in that field. So when they come out with information like best practices for COVID prevention or whatever, trusting them is the most convenient thing for me and the general public to do because allegedly they should have the most knowledge and experience in how to best handle said situation. 
Now, do they have the public's best interest in mind? Maybe not. Or you could even say, like in the case of Big Pharma, they simply don't. But who am I supposed to trust if not them? It kind of sucks. So my trust of the government is there, but it's an extremely skeptical trust and one that will probably end in disappointment. But I don't know what else to do. All right, that's the end. I think this is kind of like, I think this is interesting because it's kind of like a pragmatic approach where maybe in previous generations there was like greater trust, you know, in the experts and the government. Like it was, do you think that's true? I don't know. I feel like in previous generations, the experts weren't as far ahead of the general public. Um, okay. Like if you think of like 1950s America, I mean, rocket scientists couldn't explain what they were doing to most people, but like, um, I think the intelligent average guy understood a lot what was going on. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't, they could be made to pretty easily. I think yeah. the problem is now, like some of these fields are specialized in getting esoteric in a way that it's harder, yeah. you know, that the experts have a different role than they did in 1950s society, you know? But yeah, I, I guess. But I think that I don't know if this is right or not, but I think maybe previous generation. Well, no, I think this has probably gone up and down, you know, and the trust that the government was trying to do what was best for the people, you know. Well, that's um, true. Yeah. Trust in yeah. the government has gone up and down. Like you saw it like yeah. at a great high after World War Two. And yeah, then you saw Vietnam. Vietnam create a great low. Yeah. And then after yeah. winning the Cold War, it was at a high again. And I think yeah. right now we're at another low again. Right. Yeah. I think there's also a crisis of experts in general. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we talk a lot about problems with higher ed. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's kind of the factory for experts. And we think that that's yeah. kind of a corrupt situation, right? Yeah. So I think expertise is good. Consulting experts is good. But you need like a system with the expert. Right. Yeah. Um, like like um, that. Gives the experts some responsibility, like social responsibility or what? Well, you have to know what the incentives are of the expert. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, you have to know that people aren't... Well, it's kind of like with like just trusting blindly. Like I remember this time after I went to college where I started realizing that adults have problems. You know, mm -hmm. and when you're a kid, you kind of think adults maybe have it all figured out. Yeah. Right? And I remember I was sitting one time and my sister wanted to go to this like uh, concert when she was in high school at this very kind of like, it was like the, the real kind of seedy part of town in Dallas yeah, yeah. Or, or not seedy, but it was like the real party district for people. Like you drinking. wouldn't normally send a high schooler there. You wouldn't right. high schooler yeah. should not go there. Right. It was called deep yeah. Ellum, Right. And, um, this mother in her friend group was willing to take all these high schoolers down there to this bar to go to this concert. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I remember my parents saying yes. And then me being like, you can't let her go to this bar in deep mm -hmm. Ellum, you know? Yeah. And my parents saying, but you know, a parent is going right. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember like launching into my parents being like, you know, that not all grownups are responsible. <laughs> like, I mean, it was kind of a yeah. clear situation of one of these parents who wants to be friends with all the kids, you know, it's like something's wrong here, you know? Yeah. Um, no parent, you know, says, hey, I'll take 10, you know, underage <laughs> girls to a bar in the clubbing <laughs> district. That sounds like mm -hmm. a great time. Um, so it's like you. So then it kind of like reveals to you that not all these people are quite as competent or as mm -hmm. well intentioned as you thought, you know? Yeah. And with experts, it's kind of the same way. Right. And we yeah. almost know. And we know that even just from basic human reason that like if you have a big incentive, like if there's a big profit motive for you to think something's true, you'll probably think it's true. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. you know? um, or if there's like some inconvenient truth that would like make you have to reform your whole life you'll have a hard time recognizing that truth. Like right. that's just right. part yeah. of limited rationality of humans, you know? And, but I think what you want to do is you want to get experts in situations where the incentives are right. For example, like if I keep hiring the same plumber, you know, he's an expert, you know, yeah. it's not as glorified an expert as like a CDC viral expert, but he's an expert. Yeah. Right. And I have to trust yeah. him. Same with my auto mechanic. But if I'm in like a repeat game with him, um, like I keep hiring him over and over again for small jobs. It's in his best interest. I always do a good job and use expertise for my good. And mm -hmm. there's something great about it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and somehow like what we've done in so many government situations right now is the experts are actually the ones who have the most incentive to lie. Yeah. 
right? It, it's yeah. like Boeing de facto regulating airplanes. Well, who yeah. knows more about airplanes than Boeing? Yeah. No one. Yeah. You should not be in charge of regulating airplanes. Yeah. Boeing. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but it's also kind of like priests a little bit, right? Like, like we know what it's like when people naively trust priests as like holiness experts. Mm-hmm. How's that go? Yeah. You know, no, it kind of right. ruins the priest and the people. Yeah. Yeah. Know? It needs. Yeah. I think, though, I guess like the, the thing that kind of stood out from the comment is there's a lot of things that we like just accept because you have to like get on living with your life, you know, so I right. I like, you know, our family doctor, I kind of have a little bit of some different ideas about health than he does every once in a while. But he says, like, you know, I think you should follow the vaccine schedule. So so we do, because I can't <laughs> make heads or tails of it, you know, um, but, by that you but mean the covid vaccine schedule no, or no, the, no, like, like the normal vaccine. childhood, yeah. normal childhood vaccine. I, I hate to get into the covid vaccine, but <laughs> I think a problem with the COVID vaccine was that people were saying, Hey, this doesn't totally make sense. And the experts were saying, just trust us, you know, when the government was saying, just trust us. And you couldn't ask questions about it. So you kind of have this thing where you're kind of moving along, trusting experts, not a hundred percent sure that, that everyone has your best interest in mind, but, and then there comes a moment, like what, when's the moment that you say like, I can't trust these experts, you know, like. I, I think like a theme in these last two podcasts is like the system's broken. Yeah. Like we haven't set up a right situation to make people trustworthy and work in your benefit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like part of the problem is that so many of our experts in government also have one foot in industry and then leave government to go join industry. Mm -hmm. I don't find it as troubling when they leave industry to go join government. Right. But it's almost like we should say, hey, look, if you're heading up a major part of our government, like the FDA or FAA or whatever, Mm -hmm. we should be like, this will be your last job. (laughs) 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 And we're going to pay you well so that you're hard to bribe. We're going to pay you like a million bucks a year. And um, even when you retire, we'll pay you a million bucks a year and you're never going to work for industry. You know, Mm -hmm. this sounds totally extravagant to everyone listening, but it's actually like way less than a CEO makes. And these guys have more power than the average CEO. Yeah. Right. But if you were to say, Hey, we're going to pay you a million bucks a year until you die. And if you, we ever catch you, if we ever catch you, um, taking money, consulting after you retire or anything like that, you will lose your million dollars a year and you will sit in jail. You'll win both of those prizes, you know? Yeah. Um, we have to somehow make, these kind of like positions that we expect to run and regulate more immune from lobbyists. Yeah. You know, and they themselves are the lobbyists half the time. Yeah. You know, like they are part of the industry and going back to the industry and going to make bank, you know, and there's another way that we could kind of do this. This is where we're transitioning to this idea of eminent domain that there's like a lot of things in the public good that we can't do because there's a small motivated faction of people who would have mm-hmm. to pay an exorbitant cost if we did it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like let's say there's a mine that pollutes a river. Right. Mm-hmm. And we say, Hey, look, it'd be better for all of us, every fisherman, everybody in our you know community, if we close this mine and had a cleaner river. Right. Yeah. But guess who it's bad for? The yeah, mine. all the miners, right. the mining company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and yeah. it's really bad for them, like way more bad for them individually than it is good for you individually. Right? Yeah, yeah. And therefore, our political system is kind of messed up where like uh, just inherently messed up that like that mining company will make sure no law is passed on that and very yeah. motivated to and will spend way more than any you know, uh, individual citizen will want to throw a buck at the problem, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so we can't fix it because of this, right? Yeah. This is also a problem of like when we use terms like big oil or, you know, people who are blocking certain reforms, right? Yeah. Um, or like, could the coal industry actually be behind what's blocking nuclear power? Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Right. And maybe in reality, society as a whole would benefit, you know, a million units of happiness 
but this one little mining town is all going to have to find new jobs and it's going to destroy their community. Somehow we need to take some of that enormous benefit to society and give it to the people who are paying the cost. Yeah. This makes me think of like uh, Chris Voss. uh, And it's like, I I think when you're negotiating, you should be like creating like win-win situations. Um, And I think, you know, maybe like sometimes in some situations we overvalue compromise. And so it's like, um, eliminate the tension of, you know, who, who gets what, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, common good or mining company. And like, there's always like, how can you think creatively to, to create a situation that's a win-win, you know, rather than, uh, you give up this and we give up that, um, all the time and then renegotiating who's giving up what every time. Right. So like, hypothetically in the example I gave, it would be like, what if the government like froze the stock price of the mining company, bought all the stock from the owners of the stock. So now all the Mm -hmm. owners got paid out and then took all the employees and said, if you have a retirement, you're going to get your retirement. And if you don't, uh, or even if you don't, we're going to give you like five years of pay or 10 years of pay, right? Now go find a new thing to do in our society. You know, you got 10 years figured out because you should be taken care of for 10 years. Sorry if you can't manage that, but, or maybe we have to pay it out over 10 years because people can't manage that, but whatever, you know, figure that out. But it's, it's like that would make them not lobby as hard against closing the mine. Yeah. You know, it takes away their incentive because they know it's, it's exactly like eminent domain where it's like, Hey, sir, you know, this uh, pasture you have, we need a highway there. Uh, it's worth more to society to have a highway there than for you to have a pasture. We're going to pay you 25% more than what the pasture's worth, but you're going to have to give us this pasture. Do you, you think know? this is more or less expensive than what we're doing now? Well, right now, we're. my point is we're not doing it. We're letting the lobbyists have their way, and therefore we're not able to like um, do the reform we need to do. Right. And I think sometimes like there's a us versus them thing where like maybe an environmentalist yeah. will look at the mining company and be like, why are you paying those? jerks out you know yeah. what I mean? it's like we're paying them yeah. out because we're destroying their lives and their livelihood <laughs> you know and we're also paying them out yeah. so that they don't become enemies of the environment yeah you know the most clear example of this is actually not these like um public goods uh with industry the most e- other example of this is within the government itself that you have legacy agencies yeah. that never go away Right. Yeah. It's like, I mean, one that like Republicans are harping on is like the alcohol, tobacco and firearms. It's yeah. not clear that we need a whole separate agency regulating alcohol and tobacco or firearms, yeah. like probably yeah. the FBI and, you know, all the other organizations could probably enforce some firearm laws. And we probably don't need to have a whole agency dedicated to alcohol <laughs> and tobacco right now. Right. Yeah. But like you can't quite shut it down because there's so many workers there who are working kind of to show that you can't shut it down. Yeah. Right. And what I think you probably need to do is you need to say, Hey, if we shut down your agency, you win the lottery. (laughs) If we shut down your agency, here's 10 years pay in full retirement. Goodbye. We don't want to talk to you again. You're not working for the government anymore, but you're fine. You know? And then all of a sudden, and and everybody's like, that's too expensive. I think you save money. Yeah, right. So I think this could save money, too. I also think this could create like a weird secondary lobbying group, though. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, why is it weird, though? Oh, you mean they no, like, want to be shut down? I do think that's OK. Like, I mean, your agency's not doing anything incredibly important <laughs> if you can make good arguments for shutting it down. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Well, I, I think this this is another thing that we talked about with Catholic social teaching. We talked about like incentives aren't necessarily bad. Right. right. And it's like it's like sometimes people have to do hard things and make sacrifices. Right. But it's it's strange to ask a person to do something that's against their interest, the interest of their company, the interest of their family for public good without any personal benefit, you know, right. Um like, we want you to do this for the public good, and the public's not willing to help you out. Like, your kids can go hungry. It's going to be better for everyone. You know? I, right. <laughs> um, yeah. Well put. All right. Great. Okay. We're going to change tone. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll, let's talk about Ted Lasso, then we'll talk about the Via Negativa, and then we'll get into your recommendation. Sure. 
Got it. Great. All right. Good. So Ted Lasso has two points of interest that mm-hmm. are nothing to do with the TV show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One point of interest is we've uh, Jason Sudeikis is the star. And He's from Kansas City. Which Kansas. I have to say multiple friends of mine, I think, watch this show just because he keeps sneaking in Kansas City things into the show. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the <laughs> other thing is we have a lot of mutual friends and Laura has been friends with his sister. Oh, yeah. So I went to school with his sister. I was friends with his sister in college. Um, right. So yeah. Lindsay Sudeikis. So so mm-hmm. that kind of makes us, you know, kind of like that creates interest in this show already. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I want Jason Sudeikis to do well. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to kind of talk about this show uh, and there will be a couple spoilers, but I want to talk about it in this idea that like Bishop Barron said, And if anybody knows like a good place where this has been like expounded on by Bishop Barron or anyone else, I would love to hear it. But Bishop Barron used the term almost like as a throwaway in one of his homilies of theodrama, you know, and it's this idea that. I, I, th- I took what the idea to mean that like, if you think of your life as like a theological drama, your life has so much deeper meaning and is so much more epic. You know, like if you think of it as like, Hey, I go to the screw factory every day and I bowl on the weekends, you have a very boring life. Yeah. Right. But if you think of it as like, actually what I do is I fight the devil, I feed my kids and I give, um, infinite love whenever I can. And I'm in the communion of saints and I'm like living this life in this whole other way. It gives us like meaning to everything you do. It's like either everything matters or nothing matters. (laughs) It makes everything (laughs) matter a lot, you know? And it really is like, it gives a lot of purpose to everything. Right. Yeah. And you remember that, Bishop Barron, I, I believe, like got started kind of doing these movie reviews. Okay. I you did rem- not know that. You, okay. Yeah. That's, I first came across Bishop Barron, like, I don't know, 11, 12 years ago, um, because I would watch these like Coen Brothers movies and be like, what the heck did I just watch? You know? And then Bishop Barron would explain them, you know? Um, and um, so he would do these kind of reviews and explanations of all kinds of like secular movies and, how this is playing out. So, so there's this idea that there's this like theodrama happening in our own lives, but there's also this theodrama in good fiction, Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of a moral drama would maybe be another word, but I think it's better as theodrama. Okay. So Ted Lasso has this awesome concept in it, uh, that goes through the first five episodes. And before I watched this show, I like read the parental reviews of it. Not because I want my kids to watch it because I read parental reviews to see if I can watch it. (laughs) <laughs> which you know what's interesting is you know how like when things like uh uh video games get rated m for mature mm-hmm. really it should be like immature <laughs> like suitable for immature adults only no kids you know mature right. adults would not play this game right. rated m <laughs> so, but so that's hilarious. So I read these parental reviews and it like in the first so many episodes, like every lewd, every crass, every like bad word is like listed mm-hmm. in these reviews and wow. I read them and I'm like, that's okay. I can handle that much crassness or ludity or whatever. Right. So I'm like, okay, we're good to go. Let's watch this. Let's see Jason Sudeikis, you know, and celebrate Kansas city, whatever this thing is. Right. And this awesome storyline develops where, um, also, you know, it's also, it, it has the same plot as like major league, the movie, Uh huh. you know, that movie, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Young people don't know that movie. I'm surprised that movie hasn't more popular with the youth. It's old. It is old, but they know like karate kid. That's because of, um, Cobra Kai. Maybe. It is. I think they knew it before that because I've been quoting Karate so. Kid for over a decade at some okay. house like retreats and everyone's like, like, yeah, Karate Kid. All right. Okay. So major league, a woman wins the baseball team in a divorce and tries to ruin it. So mm-hmm. this is the same idea. A woman wins a premier league team in a divorce and tries to ruin it. And one of her plans on ruining the team is she hires the Wichita State uh, football coach to coach premier league <laughs> English soccer. <laughs> and no, she's not so dumb that she doesn't realize that American football and English football are different. She knows he's an American football coach. All right. So Jason Zedekis gets over there and starts coaching. All right. So it's all set up for this like kind of 
oh golly Midwesterner to like yeah. go to England where they're all like hardened, almost like hateful soccer fans and to just have his teeth kicked in and mm-hmm. they're going to like kill the innocent, you know, <laughs> like sacrifice the lamb of the uh-huh. Wichita State football coach, right? And it all looks like that's happening, but there's this cool thing that's happening where the Wichita State football coach is in fact not naive. Mm. And he knows that he's going over there to get his teeth kicked in. He knows he's going over there to be martyred, but he believes that as they're attacking him, he will win them. Mm. Right. And that's a dynamic I hadn't seen before because I've seen like people kill the innocent and they all regret it. And they're all, they all become better and they regret having hurt the person who is more innocent than them. Right. But here the innocent actually one step ahead of everyone else Mm-hmm. And it's almost, and this is where I go like cosmic or whatever. It's like Jesus. It's like Jesus saying, you can torture me to death and murder me, but can we be friends? <laughs> yeah. Like, like right after you do that, can we be friends? And can we just like make you your life so much better? You know? And that's what this like Ted Lasso character is doing. And it's kind of awesome. You know, because it's actually strength, not weakness. Yeah. As they're attacking him. Okay. You know? And it's not like country bumpkin gets slaughtered by the like sophisticates. Yeah. It's like he actually country bumpkin has a plan. Country bumpkin's actually right. And the sophisticates are just murdering him and they don't realize that he's winning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then and that's a good Theo drama. Like I, I yeah. was very excited about that. Right. Mm -hmm. And they had some other things happening as side characters that weren't good Theo drama. Like they had a floozy who was also like the most mentally healthy person (laughs) in the organization. But she's like doing all these other immoral things. And you're like, that's not the way you become mentally healthy or spiritually healthy, you know? Uh, And then by the, you know, like sixth episode, everything went off a cliff and it sold out to a whole bunch of bad, you know, um, ideas. Like if you really love your wife, you'll divorce your wife was one of the ideas or you know, just like defending one night stands and all this stuff. And it was just like, this is horrible, you know, done yeah. over goodbye. And what, so you, what, got, you, you guys didn't finish the show. Well, yeah, no, we did not. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And what interests me about this is like, I can put up with four letter words. I can read all those parental reviews. I can put up with a certain amount of ludity and all these other problems. Mm-hmm. If the theodrama is right. Yeah. You know, if the moral drama is right, I can deal with all these things we're worried about. Yeah. Like, oh, they said a bad word. It's like, yeah, yeah. say a bad word as long as you're not illustrating a whole wrong, like, worldview of reality. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it reminds me of Friends that I felt like Friends in some ways did a number on me that almost nothing else could because it shows all these people living these very shallow lives um, that are immoral And it shows them very happy. Yeah. It never shows like the cost of that, those choices. Yeah. Right. Um, That's like uh, opposite of like South Park. It shows everyone's life is very shallow. (laughs) They're doing things that make them unhappy and they're pointing out hypocrisy while being incredibly offensive and rude. (laughs) Right. And you know, Larry Chap, when he and I talked, he he brought up this about uh, Seinfeld, like, Seinfeld's also showing this kind of New York like hookup culture or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to associate with New York because I love that city, but like it's just like kind of like of the world hookup culture. But like mm-hmm. literally everyone in Seinfeld is kind of miserable. Yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. comically miserable. And yeah. uh, so there's like an accuracy there. It's maybe mm-hmm. not totally accurate because there's probably a lot more crying yourself to sleep than uh, that reveals, you know? Yeah. Or like other types of damage that that actions cause. But, um, but friends never showed any. Yeah. As far as I can remember, but. Some, there was not nearly enough heartache in friends <laughs> right. as there should have been, but there, there was some, but I, I think well, it's heartache like. Heartache is socially acceptable. The, the, the real ache here is like nihilism. It's like, yeah. do I have any meaning? Is any of this matter? Like, what yeah. is the point? Right. Yeah. And like those type of actions drive you to the very edge of that. Yeah. Yeah. When you, um kind of meet a work of fiction that like really understands human nature <laughs> right that's kind of like what you're describing a little bit like it's there, there's something worthwhile in there um but 
Right. That's what I, oh, so I guess where I'm going with this is I need to read reviews of shows, not whether or not they say four letter words. I need to read views of shows uh, about theotrauma. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's my middle-aged okay. man take on uh, Ted Lasso. <laughs> we want to do a future podcast on this idea that Simple House uses every training. And there's this classic spiritual concept of uh, via negativa or via positiva, right? So the way of the negation is you are always saying things that God is not. Mm-hmm. You know, like God is not stone. God is not water. God is not. And then somehow by excluding what God is, you're opening yourself to the mystery of what he really is. Right. Mm-hmm. And then positiva would be kind of the opposite. You'd actually be trying to say something worthy about God. Yeah. Like God the is attributes love. of God or yeah. Right. yeah. God is love. God is father. God is all powerful. Mm-hmm. God is all knowing. Um, but God is not just all knowing. It's, so anyway, it's confusing. But like these are kind of two different spiritual attitudes that are part of spiritual theology that mystics have used, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, is that there's a lot of truth in this, not just with like God, but like with our own visions of holiness, mm-hmm. right? Where it's yeah. like we get stuck, particularly young people, on what holiness is. Is holiness having a big family and having them all dress in, you know, matching clothes and going to Easter mass is holiness, you know, giving your last dollar is holiness, you know, always being seen in prayer is holiness, you know, and like you create these like weird ideas of what the sainthood is that you're trying to embody. And in the same way, the via negativa has to blow up strange ideas of God, like God's not just your judge. Yeah. You know, he's your loving father, right? Yeah. We also have to blow up these false conceptions of holiness. Yeah. Right. One, I think one thing that makes us like particularly can be hard for young people is that I, I feel like we grow up and we get these like identities and I, I think young people tend to be attached to some of these kind of more um, kind of outward, like I'm a person that listens to this kind of music or we have like these false identities. Right. And so then we're trying to kind of square away holiness with these identities. And then also maybe some like bad ideas that we've come across and <laughs> along the way. Um, but so you're kind of trying to mold holiness to these like kind of bad ideas. that Right. Um, right. And usually they're kind of like mostly true, you know, or like they could be true in a way, but then they become like idols. Right. Uh, Yeah. And I think most people listening kind of already know that they have at least one of these. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I feel like it's like some point in your young twenties where you're like, Oh, I'm more than the music I listen to, or I'm more than the athlete. You or know, I'm you're, more you're, than, you know. you're right. I think that's like, is the young person problem is they're trying to get like an identity to embody, but there's also yeah. just this like problem of like, what is holiness period? Even yeah. if it wasn't an identity yeah. issue, right? Like, like when I thought holiness was always turning the other cheek and never correcting. Yeah. Like a certain passivity. Right. Yeah. Well, that gets pulled out of you and that doesn't work very well. And you start learning that's not actually what holiness is. Right. And there's a tons of stories in the Bible that show that's not true. But like somehow you just like get focused on this like idea of perfection Mm -hmm. that's not worthy. Right. Right. So there almost has to be this. So we wrote this like chapter in the manual like a long time ago, like over 10 years ago. That Mm -hmm. was like called the misunderstandings of sainthood. And it was all these like false ideas of the way you were going to make yourself holy. Mm -hmm. You know, and it became this like via negativa of the spiritual life. Yeah. And you just crush these things. And then hopefully at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is be the saint that is fully, truly you who God created you to be in his image. And there is no great exterior model for that. Yeah. But and that is not like superstar or suffering martyr or whatever. Like there's (laughs) it's it could be something the world has never seen. Yeah. It's why we keep canonizing saints that are different than everyone before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, I don't know. It's just so many infinite. There's an infinite number of ways to be a saint. Yeah. And there was one that you are most suited to that if you actually mm-hmm. most truly are basing or like kind of getting in touch with you become, you yeah. know, and of course it's not going to be like a sinner, you know, or it's not going to be like, yeah, a, yeah, uh, yeah. it's not going to have like some huge flaw if it's actually the holiness, but 
Like, mm-hmm. um, it's also not just going to be like a white picket fence and any type of like thing like that either. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we like try to add like all these demands on what our sainthood requires, you know, that are right. Like the kids dress nicely or whatever. It's like and at the unrelated. end of the day, these demands are actually uh, dodges. Yeah. Right. Like it's yeah. like, Hey, I'm, I need to be a culture warrior. Well, culture warrior is actually an easier job than walking humbly and lovingly and justly with your Lord. Yeah. You know, yeah. so all yeah. right. that is a hope that we have for a future episode that we'll kind of dive into that. Some different like misunderstandings we talked to new missionaries about. Mm-hmm. All right, Laura, what do you have as your recommendation? All right. So when I, at the Kansas city, um, 20th anniversary party, I met, um, Emily and Spencer who started the new Catholic worker in Kansas city. And I think you're going to interview them soon. Yeah. Um, we're going to, the right. next episode after this should be an interview with, uh, Emily and Spencer. All right. Awesome. So Spencer, um, has been, uh, doing a podcast called Dust Bowl Diatribes with his college professor, Dr. Lori Johnson. And we, talked briefly about his podcast and I went to check it out and I got distracted by an episode about human rights um, because Clark and I have, uh, I, which did not feature Spencer. <laughs> so sorry, Spencer. <laughs> um, but Clark and I have kind of spent some time talking about rights and how to do we deal with rights. And Dr. Lori um, reviews a book by D.C. Schindler, who's at the JP2 Institute over here, um, and uh, goes through this whole book. And so my recommendation is to look up Dust Bowl Diatribes um, and look up the episodes where she is reviewing and explaining this book um, because they are excellent. <laughs> and um, I think she is actually a professor of poli sci. I'm yes. not sure, but I think so. I think so too. Um, so she's at K state, but I think another interesting thing is that she's a Catholic convert. She kind of brings this. I, I feel like it, it was interesting to hear her discuss the ideas in this book, because I, I think she has like a different perspective from a lot of like the CUA JP two Institute people that I'm surrounded by here. Um, and I, I like the perspective of the people I'm surrounded by here, but it, it was like, uh, it, it felt fresh, you know, and, um, that's great. So, yeah. it's, it's also interesting that like, here we have a convert who's a poli sci professor, who's a collaborator with a Catholic worker farm. Yeah. You know, that's right. an interesting profile of someone. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. And I forgot to say this, the book she's reviewing is the politics of the real, um, which I kind of interested to read it myself now that I've heard her talk about it, but yeah, so I'm, I guess I'm kind of recommending both uh, D.C. Schindler's ideas, which I think are worthwhile, and then her discussion of them. Good. All right. Yeah. Thank you Great. for listening to the Summited Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share. And give us feedback. As you know, if yes. you give us feedback, it might be read on the next podcast. Yeah. Yes. All right, peace. See you later, Laura. All right. Bye, Clark. Bye. Bye.